This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 24th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. So many of the practical problems that have followed from this pandemic were problems made inevitable by laws already on the books. From licensing to wage restrictions to housing restrictions, many of the people struggling to make ends meet in the middle of this ongoing crisis are doing so in part because of their own government. Cato's Michael Tanner contributed an essay to our Pandemics and Policy Project, We spoke last week. States and localities have uh, been essentially in charge of the pandemic response. Uh, What have they done wrong when it comes to trying to make room for everybody and and hope that this recovery benefits a broader scope of people? Well, let's recognize at the start that both the pandemic and the government response to the pandemic and the various close downs and various restrictions have had an impact across the entire economy. We're all poorer to some degree because of the pandemic. That said, we clearly have two different types of economy. One is for people who have sort of tech jobs or white collar jobs, the type of jobs that can easily be transferred to work from home. Uh, And then there's the type of jobs that are sort of lower uh, wage jobs, the type of jobs that require a lot of dealing with the public uh, small businesses, and they one t- side has done pretty well, the other side has largely been hurt. We know that, for example, that a large number of small businesses have closed down, and the people who worked in those have been highly affected. We know that communities of color have been hard hit, both by the pandemic itself and by the aftermath. About two-thirds of Latinos lost jobs or lost wages, one or the other, because of this. About 44% of African Americans have either lost jobs or lost wages as a result of the pandemic and its aftermath. Therefore, you clearly need to be directing your attention in terms of the recovery to those communities that are hurt the most. For parents especially, I am among them, uh, the difficulty of one, a a pandemic gripping the country, businesses being shut down, that includes daycare providers. it's been a long slog to try to get back to a, a world in which you can have somebody either watch your children or have your children attend school. And um, what are the, you know, for parents who are trying to maintain employment, who are stuck at home and still need child care, what's the state and local role? Yeah, this is a big problem. It hits on two levels. It hits on those who have to take care of their kids at home or who are trying to do jobs at the same time as that happens. And then for those who can't work at home, uh, who watches their kids while they go out to work? If you have a job uh, that requires you to work in a store or supermarket, let's say, or a delivery service or something like that, uh, you've got to have someone to watch the kids. At the same time, the schools are closed. Uh, in most major metropolitan areas, and many daycare centers are either closed or they've gone out of business altogether. Uh, This was already a problem in low-income areas, which were sort of daycare deserts, if you will, where there were relatively few options for childcare. Uh, We're making the problem worse, however, when we have regulations that drive up the cost. This costs about $10,000 on average for a year of childcare right now in this country, which is a huge burden for low-income families. Uh, And a lot of that is simply driven by things like uh, child to staff ratios, uh, the requirement that you have certain square footage of floor space or uh, that you have certain types of toys that the instructors 
have to have education credits or education backgrounds. All of those things add to the cost of childcare. We should be looking at suspending, at, uh, at the very least, many of those regulations in order to allow small mom and pop daycare providers to po- come back to, uh, into business. The housing market has uh, been rattled, not just by the fact that people who live in apartment buildings, apartments offer suddenly a very different value proposition. Uh, single family homes offer a very different uh, value proposition. State and local governments, to some extent, have uh, imposed uh, rent moratoriums. The CDC recently an- announced uh, something of an eviction moratorium. What uh, at the state and local level can be done to make this pandemic recovery more swift? This is a case where you have a very real problem, but the government is getting the solutions all wrong. You do have a big problem with rents. A lot of people simply are not going to be able to pay their rent or haven't been able to pay their rent. They've lost their jobs. They are sick. They don't have the savings available. I've seen estimates that as many as a third of Americans either have missed rental payments or are going to miss rental payments uh, coming up. That's a huge problem. But the government's answer has been to shift the entire cost of that problem onto the backs of landlords. They've essentially established rent moratoriums, uh, eviction moratoriums, said that people don't have to pay their rent or, or whatever. Uh, but that does nothing for the cost that landlords have. They're still going to have to do ma- maintenance costs. They're still going to have to deal with the expenses that they have. Even if you can uh, delay their mortgage payments, you're going to have to deal with that. What that's going to do is one of three things. Either they're going to start immediately with allowing the housing stock to deteriorate. Uh, they're not going to do maintenance anymore. They're not going to paint. They're not going to fix that boiler or, or whatever it is that you have problem in your house. Second, they're going to be more reluctant to rent to low-income people because the, those are the people who are less likely to pay their rent. And uh, so they're going to shift uh, to higher-income uh, renters. And third, eventually, they're going to build fewer apartments. What we're going to do is, is lose uh, housing stock altogether. Look, if you want to bring down the cost of, of rent, you need to build more. And that means they need to address zoning ordinances and other restrictions that they're putting right now on building housing so that you have more housing, create more supply that will lower the cost of of rent. I can imagine uh, in a situation where we have a a global pandemic where local governments and even state governments would be incentivized to move in the opposite direction. That is, uh, given the uh, difficulties and trade-offs that are faced by individuals, by businesses, by uh, landlords, especially those living in close proximity, that the impulse from state regulators and uh, local zoning people would be, well, we got to regulate this more stringently. That seems to be the the sort of default position of most government officials is that no matter what the problem is, uh, you know, if all they have is a hammer, so everything looks like a nail. Uh, no matter what the problem is, they want to regulate more. And it's compounded by the fact there's sort of a stereotype that suggests that landlords are bad people somehow, that uh, that renting property is somehow illegitimate. The reality is most landlords are not giant corporations. They're actually small mom and pop operations. Um, there's not a huge profit margin in most rentals. And uh, the people are going to be significantly hurt. Look, we have years of, of evidence studying things like rent control. And it shows that the people that need the help most are the people most likely to be hurt. Zoning is overwhelmingly local. What's the best way to fix zoning for the fastest punch in terms of uh, allowing people to, 
live where they want to, work where they want to. Well, of course, we need to do uh, things to make it easier to build housing so that people can live where they want to. Things, getting rid of things like single family only zoning, uh, lot size limits, uh, all those sort of restrictions, parking uh, regulations and, and things of that nature. But we also need to look at occupational zoning. I mean, again, I was talking earlier about the fact that you have sort of two economies. I'm working from home. Uh, most white collar workers and tech workers and people like that who have higher incomes can work from home. In fact, uh, about uh, about half of all people in the top 10% of incomes uh, are working out of their home now. But if you are have a blue collar job or a service job, uh, if you're in the lowest 10% of incomes, there's almost an impossibility of working from home. We need to make it possible for people who aren't uh, who are bakers or hairdressers or mechanics or people like that to be able to work from their homes, uh, particularly since the, the business addresses are closed down and people are not traveling. Um, look, we know a great many people have lost jobs. And while we can hope that as the economy improves, those jobs are going to be coming back, a lot of them are not. We should be making it as easy as possible for people to move from one location to another where the jobs might be. And we should be making it as easy as possible for people to enter new professions. That means we should be looking at those barriers to those uh, to new jobs, particularly things like occupational licensing. Uh, you know, everybody wants to protect health and safety. That's fine. But there's no excuse for needing 18, 16 months in order to become a hairdresser. There's no excuse for regulating uh, non-health and safety-related jobs, ranging from barbers to funeral attendants to uh, florists. Uh, those type of things are simply protections for people who do have jobs, and they prevent people from getting in on, on the occupational trades. And since they're time-consuming, costly, uh, those things hurt mostly people at the low-income uh, end of the scale who can't, simply can't afford to, uh, to take a year and a half off to study to become a florist or whatever. Michael Tanner is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.